Thessalonians chapter 2. Uh, preacher is in Indiana, somewhere in northern Indiana this week. Um, supposedly, sounds like he's having a pretty good meeting up there. Things are going well. Uh, he flies out early in the morning, so be in prayer for that. Um, that'll be, a, I don't know how he comes and goes and does it, but praise God that the Lord gave him the grace to do it. Um, 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. Thank you all for coming out tonight. We'll read just a couple verses and then we'll kind of pick up where we left off. Look there in 2 Thessalonians 2 verse 3. It says, Let no man deceive you by any means, for that day shall not come except there come a falling away first, and that the man of sin be revealed, the son of perdition, who opposeth and exalteth himself above all that is called God, or that is worshipped, so that he is God, sitteth in the temple of God, showing himself that he is God. Brother Mitch, would you pray and ask God to bless the message? for allowing us to be here, Lord God. We're thankful for what you've given us already. Uh, we're thankful for the uh, praise and worship uh, songs, Lord God. We're thankful for uh, um, just a place to be in, Lord God, and your, your book to be able to uh, learn from uh, and reflect on, Lord God. And thankful for this preacher, Lord God. I ask you to anoint him right now, Lord God. Read on his words. Read on his studying, Lord God. And, uh, allow us to open our hearts and our ears, Lord God, to receive what he has for us and what you have for us, Lord God. ask that you bless the preacher right now. Uh, touch him, keep him, Lord God. Uh, fill him up, protect his, uh, his heart, his mind, Lord God, right now. Uh, in the name of Jesus, I pray. Amen. 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 So we're here in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, and we're, and we're discussing the Antichrist. And... I, I don't know if you have noticed or if you have felt this, but it seems to me there is a deception in the world we live right now that is greater than it's ever been. We live in a day and age where right is wrong and wrong is right. And where, we, where people look at things and they want you to feel bad for them when they're doing wrong. You watch movies now, and they come out, if you watch movies, and there's probably not very many good ones out there, but anyway, if you watch a movie today, the anti-hero becomes the hero. The, the guy does wrong to get a chance to be the victor. And, and we live in this society where it, doing right is no longer the right thing. And all of these things are becoming a preparation for the tribulation that is to come. And... The scary thing is it's not just affecting the world because it's always affected the world and they've always been deceived by it and they've always been moved by it. But the problem is that deception is now moving into the church and Christians themselves are being deceived by little things all over the place. Let me give you an example for one. This is a really easy one. Consider somebody like a, a, a Joel Osteen or a Joseph Prince or a T.D. Jakes or somebody like that, right? We look at that and kind of laugh and go, how can somebody pay attention to that? Well, clearly thousands upon thousands upon thousands of people pay attention to it and are deceived by it. And they're deceived by it because they choose to be deceived by it. Because what those people are preaching is something that tickles their ears, isn't that what he says in 2 Timothy chapter 4? That they'll heap to themselves teachers having itching ears. That they're looking for something that makes them feel good about where they are. They're not happy with their current state, but they don't really want to change. So just make me feel good about where I am so that I can go on living the way I live. And that's one of the tricks of the Antichrist. The Antichrist wants you to be safe right where you are and feel good about where you are and feel like, well, you're, I'm okay, you're okay, we're all okay. There's no need for you to grow or change or do anything different in your life. And the Christian life is not a life of stagnation where you just stay where you are. If you're going to be a Christian, there is going to be growth, there is going to be change, there's going to be excitement, there's going to be hurt, there's going to be pain, there's going to be joy. The Christian life is a moving life. It is not one where you just... Come in and sit down and go, well, I'm saved and it's over with. Not if you want to be a successful Christian. If you just want to be saved, have a fire insurance policy, and get into heaven, well, then you can live with that existence, but it's miserable. Because forever and ever, this natural man and this spiritual man are warring against each other. And even as a saved man, when you go out into the world, you can't go out there for very long without your conscience and the spirit, the spirit bearing witness inside of you going, hey, 
you're doing wrong, you're not doing the right things, and you get this I you you get this voice telling you you're not where you are, and you can't really enjoy the sin. Now you can push yourself to the point where you vex the Holy Spirit and quench the Holy Spirit and you completely shut them off and put them out and all those kind of things. You can't lose your salvation, but you can completely walk away from it. And what I fear is that, that Christians today, even in our churches, in Bible-believing churches, are in danger of being deceived. They're in danger of being deceived by what's coming in this age and feeling pressure to change what they have believed for years and years and years and years. There is a movement in churches today for Christians to believe in a post-millennial belief. That is a belief that we are going to one day make the world so wonderful, Jesus is going to come back. Now, I don't know if you've looked around, but the world's not getting any better. But they, there, there is this teaching now that there's going to be a catastrophic three or four years and then all of a sudden the church is going to become victorious and we're going to have a thousand years of peace on earth without Jesus Christ. That's insane. But what you have is you have Christians now storing food in their houses that will last for 10 and 15 and 25 years. They're building bunkers in the ground. They're stocking up ammo. They're building giant freezers and larders and everything else to prepare themselves for this bad four or five years that's supposedly coming. That's called the tribulation. And the Bible tells us that we're not going through the tribulation. It says that we're not in the middle of it. But what I see are Christians being deceived by that and they're missing out on what God has for them because they're more worried about protecting themselves and protecting what they have than they are about following Jesus Christ. I can't stand here to tell you tonight that the, that the United States of America is not going to fall before the, before the rapture of the church. There have been hundreds upon hundreds upon hundreds of nations that have rose and fallen over the last 2,000 years and Jesus Christ didn't come back. So I'm not going to stand here tonight and tell you that you may not have to give something up. You may not lose your home. You may not have all of these things because I can't tell you that. Because Jesus Christ's return is not predicated on the rise and fall of the United States. We aren't, we aren't worried about whether the United States rises or falls because guess what? Whoever's president is who God allows to be president. Now, we're supposed to pray for them, and we're supposed to, Brother Sam was preaching about prayer before, we're supposed to pray for those government officials, we're supposed to lift those government officials up, we're supposed to talk, say, Lord, send some people, Romans says you're supposed to pray that you may live peaceably among them. That's what we're supposed to pray for, not pray that we may stay the same and be okay and have a bank account full of money and have a roof over our head and all those things. Paul says, with food and raiment, let us therewith be content. But we as Christians are so easily deceived by the, 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 the beauty or the deception of what we see as beauty out in the world. We see, well, if, if I can just get to here, it'll be enough. Well, if I can just get to here, it'll be enough. You never is. The flesh is never satisfied. The flesh is never happy with where it is. It's always wanting something more. It's a, it, it's, it's a, it's a never-ending Listen, I'm into hunting, right? I, I enjoy hunting. I, I, there's something about going out in the woods and just sitting there in the peace of nature and just enjoying it. And the reality is I can go to Walmart and buy a $350 rifle off the shelf at Walmart and kill a deer from Walmart just as well as I can go spend twelve dollars or $15,000 and have the best rifle built in the world. They're both going to kill a deer. But as a hunter, I want to have the best. Now, I haven't spent twelve or $15,000, so don't think I've got it. But the desire has been there. The desire has been there to go, well, you know what? I'll give you one. And we'll see if the Lord allows me to have it before the rapture or not, or before I die, whatever. But there's a shotgun called a Holland and Holland. My last name's Holland. I just want to have one because that's my last name. To go have one made right now is a quarter of a million dollars. Yeah. <laughs> Amen. My wife may not be married to me for very long if I spend $250,000 on a gun. Before she gets a house anyway. But there is this desire in your flesh in the natural man that goes, I just want that. 
And if you're not careful, that desire will overpower the desire of the Spirit of God and of the Holy Spirit inside of you to do right. And you're living in a time where the pressure is more and more and more to lift yourself up and not lift Jesus Christ up. It's more about taking care of you and taking care of your position and your place and who you are and your reputation than it is about taking care of the things of God. It's more about, well, I, I just want to, if I could just get to here, I'll be happy. No, you won't. Nope. Listen, the richest men in the world have enough money that they could never spend all of it in a single lifetime or four or five lifetimes, and they're still not satisfied to be the richest men in the world. They want a little bit more. Warren Buffett's nearly 90 years of age, and he's still trying to grow a business. Like, hang it up and give somebody else a chance. But that's, Christians are jumping after that. We're going, well, I see what they're doing, and I want to be a part of this, and I, I want to be involved in politics, and I want a position, and I want a place, and I want these things. And so I got to going through these, these, this Antichrist guy and looking at him and discussing him, and he says there in verse 4 something about this guy. He says, He opposeth and exalted himself above all that is called God. He's not really interested in anything that God has. He just wants something for himself. And as I was looking at this and thinking about this guy, I was reminded of a story about our preacher. And when our preacher was being ordained in Pensacola under Dr. Ruckman and those guys, preacher had gone through all of these questions. Now imagine standing up here in the pulpit and you've got Dr. Ruckman and Brother Donovan and like five or six other preachers who have been preaching for 30, 40, 50 years. And then you've got the deacons over there, Miss Brother Clipper at the time, Brother Mitchell, some of those men sitting up here. And these are all guys that have sat under, under Dr. Ruckman for 30, 40, 50 years. Know, maybe not quite as much, but know it pretty good. And they're all asking you Bible questions. And you're answering them and you're giving the answer and you've done really well and you... And, you're like, man, things are going really well. And preacher tells a story that he gets to the very end, and Dr. Ruckman goes, does anybody else have any more questions? And Brother Donovan on the end goes, I've got one more. Said, Brother Peacock, would you mind giving us the 18 types of the Antichrist? And preacher's face, he just says his face just went white. He's like, uh, wasn't prepared for that question. And so he starts trying to name a few, and Dr. Ruttman can see he's struggling, and he's like, well, brother, you know, so-and-so, and so-and-so, and Dr. Ruttman's trying to help him, and Brother Donovan finally has to interject and go, no, 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 it was just a joke, it was just a joke. <laughs> but, in going, but that passage, that's, that story came to my mind as I'm going through this passage, and I got to thinking about, the, in the Old Testament, and then in the, there's a couple in the New Testament we'll cover, but we're going to take some time over the next couple of weeks, and I'm going to cover the 18 types of Antichrist in the Old Testament. Because I think there's some attributes in these people that we can look at to help us see some places that when you're around somebody else, maybe that person is acting like an Antichrist. They're acting like they, they have the ability to have those character traits or those attributes about them, and it's it's helpful to recognize it. It's helpful if, if, you're, if you don't know what you're being deceived about, then how can you avoid it? You can't, you can't get away from it if you don't know you're really being deceived. You can't know if somebody's selling you a bill of goods, if you don't know they're selling you a bill of goods, you, sometimes you don't know until it's too late. And so what I want to try to do is go through some of these men, some of these people, and talk to you about, about these guys and some of their attributes. And... It, it just, turn over, this, this guy's not even a type of Antichrist, but turn over to 2 Kings chapter 20. 2 Kings chapter 20. Because this for me is one of the deceptions that I see in older Christians today or older people today. Look at 2 Kings chapter 20. And in this passage, what's going on, Hezekiah has invited in his enemy to see all of the things that God's blessed him with. He's opened up the door and he said, look, you guys come on in. Let me show you the treasure troves of all God's blessed us with. Come on into the temple. Let me show you all the things God's given us in this temple. Let me show you just how good 
how wonderful we have it and how, how great we have it and how wonderful these things are. He's just opened the door and invited them in. Now, I don't know why, but I look at that and I see that people sometimes open their door and invite folks in they have no business inviting in. There's certain people you have no business fellowshipping with and you have no business associating with and you have no business sharing things with and telling them things because you know what? All they're going to do is use it against you one day. All they're going to do is go, well, I know so-and-so and they've got this and they've got this and they've got this. Listen, there are some criminals out there. There are some people walking the street that I am not inviting into my house. I don't need them know to know what they need to expect when they come to my house. I don't want them to see what I have. I don't want them to see where my family lives. I don't want to see where my kids sleep. I don't want them anywhere around me, and I'm not going to invite them in. But yet, unassumingly, we invite folks into our home. We invite folks into our lives every day when we pick up a phone and start scrolling through things and just let them in to see where we are. Because people are watching you. People are paying attention to you. You don't think that that little gif or whatever you're sharing or sending out makes a big deal, but you know what it says to somebody you send it to is, well, clearly they are watching that. And clearly they saw it and they think it's not, a, it's not a big deal, so it's okay for me to send it out too. And what you do in moderation, somebody else will do in excess. What you don't realize is, Christians, is that other people are watching you. You're not, a, you're not an island to yourself. You're not on your own. You're not the one that's all by yourself and, you're, and you're, nobody pays any attention to you. No, people are paying attention to you whether you realize it or not. People are watching how you live. People are watching how you walk. People are watching where you go. They're watching what you buy in the grocery store. They're paying attention to you, and, they'll, and, they're, and they're gathering things just like you do. You walk into Walmart, and you immediately start making judgments about people you see in Walmart. You see somebody in Walmart, and you go, uh, I don't take the cart over here. You turn and go down a different aisle because you just don't want to be around them. Or you get behind Grandma who's walking three miles an hour, and you're like, I want to get around her. And you, you're making judgments in your head all the time. Well, they're making judgments about you all the time. But here is Hezekiah who's opened up his house, who's let these people come in. And Isaiah has now come to Hezekiah and said, what are you doing? And this is Hezekiah's response. Look in verse 19. He said, then, Hezekiah, then said Hezekiah unto Isaiah, good is the word of the Lord which thou hast spoken. And he said, is it not good if peace and truth be in my days? Meaning, what does it matter what happens after I die? That's what he's saying. He goes, well, what, what, what does it matter after I... What, I mean, if, as long as it's okay during while I live, who cares what happens after I'm gone? Well, yeah, it matters. He's got kids. He's got a son who's fixing to take the throne in the very next chapter who winds up becoming the most wicked king Judah ever had, Manasseh. But you look back through Hezekiah's life, and I was going back through it, and I'm looking at Hezekiah, and you know what? Hezekiah says he comes in and it says he did what that which is right in the sight of the Lord. He took down some things. There's a thing he called Nehushtan that he takes down and destroys. It's an idol that Israel was worshiping. He did all of these things because he was following the good example that was set before him. His dad set a good example. Ahaz, the Bible says, did right in the sight of the Lord. He had a good father who led him in the right way and pointed him in the right direction. But then when it comes time for him to worry about his son, he's like, well, who cares what happens to my son? I won't be here. Well, it matters, folks. Old people, there's another generation coming behind you that we need you to finish faithful, to encourage us to finish faithful, and to carry the torch and not just let the guard down because, well, I've done my time and it's over with. My kids are all out of the house. They're all grown. I got grandkids, great-grandkids, whatever. No, it matters. You matter to this church. You matter. You being here on Sunday night on Wednesdays, it matters because you're holding a place that is one day going to be empty. We just laid to rest a dearly beloved saint. And you know what I'll say about her? Her seat is empty and she's sorely missed. Somebody's going to have to step up and fill her shoes at some point in time. And you know what I can say about Miss Highcove Is she left a legacy of loving Jesus. I remember being a young man and every time I shook her hand or spoke to her, like the fear of God came over me. Because I knew I was talking to a lady that talked to the Lord and spent time with the Lord. And I'm like, she knows all the bad things I've thought. She knows all the bad things I've done. And I just need to go to the altar and get right. But that was her testimony. And you go, well, well, yeah, she had that testimony for 30-something years. And it had an impact on a younger man who goes, you know what? If that lady can do what she did and, 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 and live the life she lived and get through it, guess what? I ought to be able to do it too. Amen. 
But here's Hezekiah hanging out going, well, what does it matter who happens after me? What, what is it? Who cares what happens after I'm dead and gone? Well, I'm, I'm just going to live it up now. I'm going to enjoy it. I'm going to show everybody what God's given me. I, I'm so blessed. God's given me all this stuff, and you just need to be in awe of what God's given me. No. You need to, there's some things you hold secret in your heart. There's some, it says about Mary that there were some things that she treasured in her heart she didn't share with anybody else about the birth of Jesus. We'll find out one day in heaven. But you know what? While she was here, she didn't tell anybody else about it because it was special. It was between her and the Lord. It was something that God did for her that nobody else knew about. There's some things that you should keep inside your heart that everybody else doesn't need to know about. Turn over to um, turn over to Genesis chapter four. We'll start with the first one. The first type of antichrist in your Bible is Cain, and. I know all of you Bible scholars, Cain was of that wicked one. He was of the father of the devil and all that stuff. But I got to thinking about this. There's four people. There's Adam and Eve, Cain and Abel. Adam and Eve are clearly making the right offerings to the Lord. Abel's making the right offering. What went wrong with Cain? It wasn't like Cain hadn't seen his parents make an offering before. It wasn't like he hadn't had an example of this is what God requires of us. This is what we do. This is how we do it. And for some reason, Cain just got up and goes, you know what? This is what I want to give. Cain gets up and goes, well, I, well, I, I realize that this is how we worship. I, but, but, I mean, God ought, to just, God ought to just be happy that I brought something. Why should God be happy that you just brought something? Didn't he give all? Didn't he just, didn't he lay down everything? You know, I got to thinking about this over there in Acts chapter 6, going through that passage, the, the Pharisees are, the, the Pharisees, the, the, it says the Libertines and the Cyrenians and the Alexandrians are all coming against Stephen for preaching the gospel. They're all Jewish people. He's in the synagogue, he's preaching to those folks, and he's trying to point them to Jesus Christ. And it occurred to me this afternoon that there in Acts chapter 7 is where Israel finally rejects Jesus Christ. They turn their back on him, they stone Stephen, and they walk away from their Messiah and say, he's not our guy. Do you realize that when they walked away, God turned to you and I and said, okay, I'm going to come to the Gentile and I'm going to give you a chance to get in and I'm going to give you something that they won't have because I'm going to make them jealous. Now, think about this. Six million Jewish people died at the Germans' hands in the Holocaust. Somewhere between 8 and 12 million are the estimates that Stalin killed in Russia. That's 20 million, give or take a few here or there, that most likely died and went to hell because they rejected their Messiah. That's just in a six or eight year window right there. 20 million people died and went to hell so that Jesus Christ could have a chance to give you and I an opportunity to get saved. How many hundreds of millions of them have died over the last 2,000 years so the gospel could come to you? And you go, well, God, I'm just going to bring you what I want to bring you. I mean, I, I, mean I, I know we've always done it this way. I know this is what you expect. I know this is how you want it done, but I'm, I, just, I just want it this way. And then what's crazy about Cain is, is Cain gets mad because God goes, Hey, Cain, why is your countenance fallen? If you'll just give the right offering, it'll be okay. Cain doesn't go, Okay, well, I'll get it right. He goes, Well, I'm not doing that. You should take what I want. He gets madder. He gets more upset because... God won't just let him be who he wants to be. God won't let him just do it the way he wants to do it. And, and Well, God, you should just be happy I'm worshiping you right now. No. Cain, if you want to worship me, this is how you're going to worship me. Because there's fixing to come a whole generation of, and eons of people 
that worship however they want to worship, and they're worshiping all kind of things, and it ain't me. And you, and you know, you, you, you come in here and you, and you see the preacher go, we're holding the line, we're staying here, we're not moving from here. There's a reason why we're staying here and not moving from here. Because God showed up this way and God continues to bless this way and God continues to do things this way. And you know what? We're going we're to hold the line until Jesus Christ comes back. We're not going to change how we do things just because, well, I just want to do it differently. No, the Lord says you're going to do it decent and in order, not in some chaos. And yet you, you, look at all the, you look at the majority of churches today and it's chaotic when you walk in there. You can't, only, you can't even hear yourself think sometimes the music is so loud. You can't acknowledge what's going on because you're just overwhelmed by the bass that's causing your chest to compress because of all the things that are happening in there. And people go, well, we're worshiping God. No, you're not. You're worshiping a God, but you ain't worshiping the God. And they're deceived by it. They're, they're misled by it. And they can't see the truth because they don't want to see the truth. They're happy with where they are. And they're not interested in changing. And you know what will happen, Christian? If you bring to God what you want to bring instead of what God tells you to bring, you'll be in the same place before long. If you give to God whatever you want to give God, God's, you know what? God's going to go, fine, give it, but I'm not taking it. You want to know why you bring things to the altar and you get it and take them back? Because you're not giving God what He really wants. And then Cain not only gets mad that God calls him out on it, God doesn't even call him out in front of the other three people. He has a private conversation with him, and he gets upset. And then he goes to his brother, and he's trying to convince his brother that he's okay. And he gets mad, and he goes, and I'm, I, I can see the conversation going something like this. Cain, Cain saying to Abel, Abel, can you believe God just won't accept what I've done? I mean, you see all of the crops that we've grown. You see all the sweat that I've put in these crops. I mean, why is it God? I, mean, I didn't bring him the leftovers. I brought him the very best of the works of my hands. Why isn't he taking it? Why, why, what's wrong with him? And Abel going, I don't know, but we've always just offered a lamb. And I even can see Abel going, hey, Cain, I'll give you a lamb if you want one. Because it says that in Hebrews, he offered a more excellent sacrifice. Abel knew what he was offering. He knew the right offering to bring. And Cain gets so mad that instead of getting right over it, he just kills his brother. And you know what happens, Christian? You get so mad that God blesses somebody and doesn't bless you and God accepts somebody's offering and doesn't accept yours that you'll kill that brother with your words. That you'll take that guy out, you'll take that sister out and you won't have fellowship with him anymore and you'll break fellowship and you'll go off in, into the wilderness of whatever you go off into the wilderness of and you'll walk away from the Lord all because you, won't, you don't want to give whatever God's asking you to give. There's nothing you're going to give up that God's not going to make ten times better. Amen. There's nothing that God's ever asked me to lay on the altar that He hasn't done something ten times more miraculous. And I don't mean economically and prosperously and all that foolishness. I mean from a spiritual standpoint, when God said, lay this down, God gave me something better. Amen. I'll tell you, I'll, I'll give you a personal one. I can remember a time there was a Young lady that I dated for about nine years. I'm like, this, is, this woman is the woman. I'm going to marry her the whole nine yards. Just thought, I mean, we were high school sweethearts. And God finally, I was called to preach. And God goes, before you go to Bible school, get rid of that girl. And I'm like, but God, that's the one. He's like, that ain't the one. And you know what I can tell you today? I found the one. Because I waited on God. Because I let God show me the right one to have. And I let God show me the right one to have. And you know what I can say is, that one's never discouraged me from following Jesus Christ. That one's never said, hey, walk away from the Lord. Hey, get out of church. You know what? She said to me on our third date, she said, Woodard, we've talked about all of these things, but when you lay on your bed and you're dying, what will you consider success being? Well, I could tell she wasn't worried about all the financial things and everything else that she was asking when she asked that question. And I knew in that moment that she's, when she asked that question, her mind was already in the right direction. And it was on the third date. I, she knew on the first, I knew on the third that we were going to get married. <laughs> she's always been a little ahead of me. But what I'm saying is, is, is God asked me to give up something that broke my heart that I just thought... There's no way in the world this is, this is not the will of God for my life. I mean, me and this girl were raised in church together. We were in the youth group together. We went on all the youth trips together. We were good kids. There was nothing wrong with the relationship. And God goes, that's not the right one. 
And you know what? I wound up with something better. And you know what? I can give you time and time and time again in my life where God said, hey, give this up and something better has come along. Because God is a good father and he gives good gifts and he, and he does better and above all that we concedingly and ask and thank and praise and everything else. Brother Sam told you to ask theory during, during Bible study time. Ask, seek, knock. We, ask, we, we, we receive not because we ask amiss, we are consumed of our own lust. But when God asks you to give something, when he asks you to lay something down, when he says, bring me an offering, he's not doing it to take something away from you. He's doing it to remind you that you still need to submit to another authority. And when you won't bring what you want to bring, when you, want to, when you bring what you want to bring instead of what God brings, you're saying I'm the authority and God's not. And that was ultimately Cain's problem. Cain said, I'm in charge and you're not going to tell me what to do. That sound familiar? That's the world we live in today. You're going to like me the way I am, and you're not going to tell me what to do. It's insane. Hundreds of millions of Jewish people are dead and burning in hell right now for you and I to get a chance to be saved, and we want to question God when he says give something up. Millions upon millions of people missed out on the opportunity for Messiah because they'd rejected him 2,000 years ago so you and I can get in. And you're going to think that you have something that you shouldn't give up because God asked you to give it up. And I don't know what God's asking you to lay down. I don't know what God's asking you to set aside. I don't know what he's saying, hey, you need to let go of. But trust me, there's nothing you have that's worth your fellowship with Jesus Christ. There's nothing you have that's worth giving up the peace that passes all understandings. Cain had to leave the sanctity of his home and, and wander into a wilderness as a vagabond for the rest of his life. He had a mark on him. Every time you saw him, they saw him coming from miles away because he was marked. Do you want to be marked, Christian? Or do you just want to walk with the Lord and do what the Lord asks you to do? Turn over to Judges chapter 4. Judges chapter 4. I'm going to skip a couple. Don't worry, we're going to cover them before it's over with. Judges chapter 4 and verse number 1. It says, And the children of Israel did evil in the sight of the Lord when Ehud was dead. And the Lord sold them into the hand of Jabin, king of Canaan, that reigned in Hazor, the captain of whose host was Sisera, which dwelt in Harasheth of the Gentiles. And the children of Israel cried unto the Lord, for he had 900 chariots of iron. In 20 years he mightily oppressed the children of Israel. The next type is Sisera. Now, here's a guy that oppressed Israel for 20 years because Israel was wrong. I mean, Israel, the Bible says they did evil in the sight of the Lord. And he's oppressing them for 20 years. And it occurred to me, Israel had every opportunity the minute that Sisera comes in and begins oppressing them to turn back to God. Israel, Israel didn't have to wait 20 years to go, hey, God, we need your help. But yet they waited 20 years to ask God for help. They waited 20 years to go, hey, God, you're right, we're wrong. And I got to thinking about this, and I think Brother Sam mentioned something along these lines in Bible study, but we come to a place in our life where we think we can handle things, and, well, we're just going to do it on our own, and we're not going to ask God for how, to, how he wants us to handle it. We're just going to do it this way and then ask God to bless it after it's over with. You know, one of Hezekiah's problems was over there in, in 2 Kings is Hezekiah gets in trouble with the Assyrians, and he goes to battle with them for years and years and years. He becomes oppressed by them. And it's only after they've taken everything he has that then he turns to Isaiah and goes, Hey, well, how, would God, how would God want me to handle this? And I got to thinking about how, as a Christian, there are times in my life where I'm like, Well, I'll just handle this. It's not a big deal. Every little thing that I thought wasn't a big deal for some reason turns into a big deal in my life. 
I mean, it's just a small problem. I mean, it's just this little, it's just a little thing. It won't be a big deal. Not, you know, it's, it's okay. It'll be fine. And the next thing you know, it blows up into something that, you know, way, way greater than what it is. It's like a water leak in a wall. You open up the wall and you find a little bit of water spraying. And if you've got older CPVC in your house and somebody opens a wall as a plumber and goes in there and they go in there with a piece of a pair of pipe cutters and go, I'm just going to cut this out real quick. We'll throw a couple shark bites in. You'll be good to go and you're fine. Well, there's a problem with older shark bite, with older CPVC pipe. It's been warmed and, and cooled and warmed and cooled and warmed and cooled and it gets brittle. And if you use those fancy little PVC cutters that make it really easy and it cuts it and, and clears it out really quickly, it will actually cause that pipe to splinter. And when you put everything back together, you can't see the splinter. And the next thing you know, in about a day or two, there's water leaking out of the wall. And you're going, we just fixed this. And you're like, well, what happened? And now all of a sudden it's running up the wall to wherever the last fitting is. And typically the last fitting is above the top plate, somewhere in your attic, if your house has been repiped from overhead. And so now it's in the attic spraying in multiple directions. And what was a little thing that I'm just going to cut out and patch and I'm going to run a Home Depot and take care of, that if you'd have bought the multi-tool and used a blade or even used a hacksaw blade and just cut it with a hacksaw blade, taking a couple extra minutes, you would have never split the pipe. But you don't ever know the pipe split until it gets all the way up or all the way down wherever it is. And then to fix that damage, you're now cutting the whole entire wall out, probably pulling the vanity out, maybe pulling the shower out, opening the bedroom up, who knows wherever the pipe is in the wall, to do something that could have been fixed right the first time if you just done it right the first time. And I look at this and I go, if they'd have just done it right the first time, they wouldn't have been oppressed for 20 years. And Christians, if you'll do right the first time, you don't have to live in oppression. Amen. You don't have to live in a place where somebody's got their thumb on you and they're holding you down. And now, Christian, if you're on the other side and you're holding somebody down, quit doing it. Every one of us is sinners in here. Every one of us has skeletons in the closet that, that are under the blood and we pray to God they never come out and you never see them and you never know about them because between me and Jesus, they're there and he's already put them behind his back and they're in the depths of the sea and they're as far as the east is from the west and all of those things and only he and I know about them. And if you happen to find out about them, I pray you'll put it under the blood too and you'll try to forget about it as well. But too often times I've seen Christians hold other Christians back and remind them of where they came from and what they did and who they are and why they shouldn't be able to serve God and why they shouldn't be able to follow Jesus Christ and why they'll never be better than they are because they don't like the fact that they got right and they're not happy that they got right and they're not happy they're back in fellowship with Jesus Christ. Because they're not in fellowship, so why should you be in fellowship? And if I can't get any higher, you're not going to get any higher. Don't be upset that God's blessing somebody else and not blessing you. Why don't you ask yourself, God, what, am, what have I done to break the, break the relationship between you and I and why you're not talking to me anymore? Because that's all that matters. Amen. Your daily walk with Jesus Christ should be the most important thing you have in your entire life. What you talk to the Lord about is the most important thing in the world. That thing Brother Sam did during Bible study about prayer, that is, I dare say, a weakness for 90% of people in here. None of us pray the way we ought to pray. I'm not saying you don't pray. I'm not saying you don't talk to the Lord. But is your prayer life really where it should be? Are you really consulting the Lord about all the, th all the decisions you should make? We're supposed to talk to him about everything. Pray without ceasing in a spirit of prayer. Walk in a spirit of prayer throughout your day and walk where the Lord wants you to walk. What happens is you stop walking in that spirit. You stop walking in the Holy Spirit. You stop walking in the spiritual man and doing, and doing the things that the Lord would have you to do. And you go, well, well what does it I mean? Th this little bit won't hurt. You're, you're on a diet. You're doing keto, right? That's, that's the thing, I guess. Keto, paleo, something like that these days. You're on a diet. You've cut out all sugar, and you're just not supposed to have any sugar for however long you're not supposed to have sugar for. And somebody brings you a plate of cookies. 
I mean, uh, it wouldn't be right to not eat a cookie. Well, my first question would be is why are you on the diet to start with? Did the Lord tell you you needed a diet? Or are you just doing it to make yourself feel better and make yourself look better and want people to say, oh, well, he looks good and they look good or she looks good and I fit in this dress now and I can do this because it's about you? Or are you on a diet because the Lord says, hey, you need to cut a few pounds and you need to look better and you need to have better testimony? Because you know what? When you're on a diet for the right reason and the plate of cookies comes by, you can go, hey, kids, here's a plate of cookies. Because God called me to do this, and I'm not going to play the cookies. But that little cookie, you go, oh, I mean, just one won't hurt. Listen, if somebody brings you a fresh plate of cookies, I, you, ain't, you ain't eating one. Listen, I don't have a glass of milk small enough in my house for one cookie. That's the reality of it. Listen, you don't just dip it one time, and the glass is empty. Like, it takes four or five, maybe dozen cookies to make that glass get to the bottom. And then all of a sudden, when it's empty, you're like, well, I'm halfway through this cookie, so I need another glass. And you refill the glass, and you go, well, I've got a full glass, so I better eat a few more cookies. And, and next thing you know, you wake up, and three days later, you're five pounds heavier than where you were. And you're going, well, what happened? And you look back, and you go, well... It was a cookie I ate. And I say to you, it was the diet you were on. Because you'd been starving yourself for maybe the wrong reasons. You'd been putting yourself through something God didn't want you to go through. Sometimes you put a burden on yourself and say, well, I'm going to do this because this is what I need to do. And I'm going to read 10 chapters a day. And I'm going to do this. And I'm going to pray 20 minutes a day. And you put all these expectations on yourself. And guess what? An emergency happens. And you can't help it. And you've got to rush out of the house in the morning and you don't get your 10 chapters done. And you wake up in another day and you go, well, man, I'll catch it later. And all of a sudden you look back and you're 30 chapters behind and you're going, well, I'll just never do it. And you throw up your hands and you just quit reading because, well, I'm just never going to get through the Bible. Who called you to read 10 chapters? Did you ask God what he wanted you to read? Because sometimes, you know what, a verse will get you through. Sometimes just that verse in the morning is all you need to get you through because that's the bread sufficient for the day. Listen, I'm not telling you don't sit down and read 10, 15, 20 chapters. If you've got the ability to do that, sit down and read 10, 15, 20 chapters. If you can sit down and study for four, five, six hours at a time, sit down and study. If God's giving you the ability to do it, use it for His glory. But sometimes you put undue expectations on yourself that you're never going to achieve, that you can never get to, when if you would just walk one step at a time, day by day, guess what? You'll look back and go, well, how did I get here? Because you did what you could on the day that you had it, and you didn't put it off until tomorrow. Because sometimes we set these dumb, crazy, lofty, wild goals that are never attainable, that are, listen, nobody in here will ever be Dr. Ruckman. Nobody in here will ever be Dr. Peacock. So quit trying to set that as your goal. Go, God, what do you want me to be? What is it you want for me? Because I want to be what you want me to be, regardless of what anybody else thinks about it. And set out to achieving that. And you know what you'll find out? God won't tell you the first time you ask him exactly all of the things he wants you to do. He's going to give you the bread sufficient to get through the day, and you're going to have to learn, well, Lord, I guess I did what you want me to do today. And you'll get up tomorrow, and you'll go, well, Lord, I want to do what you want me to do today. What, what is it? Listen, God's never showed me a, a 25-year plan for my life. I barely have a five-year plan. Because the Lord's not interested in telling you where you're going. I realize He knows where it's at. His foreknowledge knows where we're going, but he also knows that there's about a billion decisions that I'm going to make between here and there is where he wants to get me. And if I don't trust him for those billion decisions, I'm not going to wind up exactly where he wants me to wind up. And so he's got a path that is all over the place to fit all of the decisions that you're ever going to make in your life. So stop trying to set some lofty goal you can't attain to and, and allow yourself to be defeated by it. And allowing yourself to be oppressed because you didn't do it. Don't, don't make some, and don't, Lord of mercy, don't stand up and tell everybody else what you're going to do either. That, that's like a guaranteed recipe for failure. 
It is a guaranteed respite. The minute you tell somebody, it's like, oh, it's done. You can forget it. It's not happening. Don't tell anybody else you're on a diet because you'll, like, you will stop being on the diet about 20 minutes after you tell them. But this guy, Sisera, is holding his thumb on somebody. He's oppressing, he's oppressing these people. He's putting them down, and he's, he's saying, I'm not going to let you back up. And where his type comes in is eventually he's killed by a woman that has, he, she drives a tent peg through his head. What I'm trying to say to you tonight in just these couple of examples I've given you is all of these guys wind up with a wound that can't be healed because at some point in time they chose themselves over choosing what God wanted for them. And when you walk away with God, and when you walk away from God, sometimes you may wind up with a wound that can't be healed until it's too late. I'm not saying you're not going to heaven. I'm not saying you're not saved. I didn't say that at all. But you're going to wind up with a wound that you can't recover from. There's people that many of us in here know that are no longer here and they're dealing with wounds and they can't recover from them. And they can't find a way back. Young people, it starts right now. Don't believe the lie that you can live how you want to live and then you just get back to God when you want to get back to God. Because the majority of the folks in here were raised church people. And they'll tell you that they're a small minority of people that are still in church today. And they're in church by the grace of God. And you'll be in church by the grace of God when you get to be my age, when you get to be these other folks' ages. You'll be in church by the grace of God. But it'll only be because you've chose to walk with the Lord along the way. If you think you're going to just walk out of here and walk back in, you may or may not walk back in. Awful lot of people have walked out of here and said, well, it'll be okay, I'll be okay, I'll be back when I want to come back, but I'm just going to go... Sow my oats. I'm going to do what I want to do for a little while because I just, need to, I just need to experience life. No, you don't. There's not a sin I've ever committed that I'm thankful that I committed. There's not a sin that you'll ever go, well, thank God for that one. No. Every one of them will leave a mark on you and will leave a stain on you and will leave a regret in your life and a decision and a place which will go, man, I wish I'd never done that. Paul says, be simple concerning evil. You don't need to know what's out there because all that's out there are wolves and lions and they want to kill you and destroy you. And the only way you're going to make it through is to stay in fellowship with Jesus Christ on a daily basis. As bad as mom and dad want to, want to help you, as bad as mom and dad want to see you get through, you're not going to do it if you don't do it for yourself. I want all three of my kids to grow up and love Jesus and stay in church and I've talked to about every one of the parents that I know about what they did for their kids to keep them in church or why they're out of church or whatever. And you know what I found out? There's no rhyme or reason to it. It has to be up to the kid to make the decision to do it. Amen. But folks, you're in the same position. You're not going to make it through to stay in fellowship if you don't make a decision to stay in fellowship. If you don't choose to walk in fellowship with Jesus Christ, you're not, going to, you're not going to get through. It has to be a daily committal on your part to get up and walk with Jesus Christ. It can't be, well, I'll, I'll, well I got church on Wednesday. I'll, you know, we'll, I'll, it'll be fine. I'll get it. It can't be church on Sunday. Well, it'll be fine. I'll get it. No, it has to be a commitment on your part to walk with the Lord or this deception will creep into your life. You won't even recognize it. You won't even know that it's there. People go, well... People have said for years Hezekiah was a good king. Says he did right in the sight of the Lord. No, nobody, I've never heard anybody say Hezekiah was a bad king. But the reality is, you may fool all every one of us, but you're not fooling your relationship with you and the Lord. He knows whether you're in fellowship or not. He knows whether you're talking to him or not. He knows whether things are moving in the right direction. And so I hope you'll consider some of those things. I hope that you will think about this. And I know I've run a little bit long tonight, but, I, but it's, it's important because there is a deception that's happening in the church today that is greater than it's ever been. And it is more subtle than it's ever been. I used an illustration last Wednesday that, and I'll try to close with this illustration. I said try. 
But there is a chemical that we use, well, I say we, that sweet potato farmers use to kill ants on their crops. It is one little bottle like this. It's about two ounces per thousand gallons of water. And it'll cover over, I think it's like 500 acreage coverage with that, kind of, with that little bit of chemical. Two ounces in a thousand gallons. And it'll kill all the ants in the field. Christian, it takes two ounces of the world in your life to kill every bit of Jesus Christ. And I'm not saying that, that you, it, to kill your fellowship with Him. Let me, it takes two ounces of the world to kill your fellowship. It doesn't take some giant catastrophic move. It doesn't take some terrible thing happening to you. It takes two ounces. Jesus said a little leaven leaveneth the whole lump. When you make bread, you put, what is it, like a, a teaspoon, I mean, it's, but it's like sometimes less than a teaspoon. We make bread, it was like this little tiny, like eighth of a teaspoon thing we would dump in there. It was a really small amount of yeast you'd put into it. And all of a sudden that bread would rise up. That little tiny weighs less than a grain of bacteria causes the bread to rise. That little tiny grain of flesh in your life will cause you to walk away from Jesus Christ. Paul said, I die daily. We're going to go through, I don't know how long it'll take me, I got through two tonight, but we're going to go through over the next few weeks all of these different types of Antichrist. Because I, I have seen and am seeing these attributes that some of them I've even seen in my life at some point in time, and I'm like, Lord, help me to get rid of that. Help me to let go of that, because I think this is helpful and I think it's beneficial, because I think if you see the deception and you see what's going on and you see what's happening, it'll help you have a better fellowship with Jesus Christ. And so I hope it has tonight, and I hope, I hope you're encouraged, and I hope you'll take it and go home and think about these things. Let's stand and we'll be dismissed.